Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On many shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that neighborhood special? Sometimes, like on tonight's show, we host an episode about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, you've heard about the history of U.S. presidents who lived in or came from New York. We've talked about African-American history in the city, the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've even explored the history of bicycles and cycling. They've been here for 201 years. And we've covered the history of punk and opera in New York. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we are going across the harbor to what many New Yorkers consider our outermost borough, Staten Island, but it's a place with a lot of history and a lot of wonderful New York things to see and experience. And we're going to focus on four very special places on Staten Island, places that you can visit, Historic Richmond Town, Snug Harbor, the National Lighthouse Museum, and Fort Wadsworth, which is now part of the Gateway National Recreation Area. Our first guest is a Rediscovering New York regular and our special consultant, David Griffin. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast providing creative sales-enhancing services for the national real estate community. He's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. David's Room at the Top series, co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent New York, is the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. His latest blog is Every Building on Fifth. It documents every single building on Fifth Avenue, I'm not kidding, from Washington Square Park up to where Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River. David's writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust Preservation Magazine. David, another hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Good, good. To our listeners tonight, given the present situation uh, with uh, the virus, uh, my guests are in studio via Zoom, and so the sound is going to be a little tinny, but uh, here we are. Uh, David, we're going to talk about two things that you're going to focus on, Richmond Town and Snug Harbor. Let's start off with Richmond Town. What is Richmond Town exactly? And Richmond uh, actually is the name of the, of the county that Staten Island is part of and uh, uh, is the name of the county. What, what is Richmond Town specifically? Well, Richmond Town was the uh, primary settlement on Richmond, which we also know as Staten Island. Um, Richmond being the county, Staten Island being sort of the, the name of the borough, if you will. And it was the location of the original courthouses for that community. So that was sort of the county seat, if you will. And it developed as a uh, both an agricultural and a, a sort of an industrial settlement. We're talking about colonial age stuff, of course, so this is very light industry. Um, until the development of St. George and the moving of the Civic Center from Richmond to St. George. Uh, St. George, of course, was the closest point to Manhattan. Ferry service was becoming a more important part of life on Staten Island. Uh, St. George just seemed like the, the place to start putting both the, the courthouse, city hall, banks, that kind of thing. And Richmond Town uh, was kind of left to its own devices and sort of faded away over the course of about uh, 100 years or so. How old is Richmond Town? When, when was it first settled? Uh, Richmond Town was settled in the 1690s, uh, possibly earlier than that. It was first known as Cocklestown. Due to an abundance of oyster or cockle shells, uh, there were huge oyster beds throughout New York Harbor, and there was a very easy thing for people to kind of farm and live off of. So they became much, you know, sort of the idea of the whole Manhattan oyster stew, that kind of thing. It all it all developed from that type of uh, that type of era. Wow, uh, who would have thought that oyster stew would have been developed on Staten Island? <laughs> that that's I great. Know. 
Um, when would uh, the area first have, have had what we would recognize as a village or a place where people would congregate that wasn't just, that wasn't just farmland? Well, basically, the, by the 18th uh, century, it was already the county seat and a commercial center. So we start seeing uh, the development of the village from there. There are buildings on site that go back to the 1600s, um, uh, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. But yeah, from, I would say, early 1700s onwards, it's definitely a village. It becomes kind of a, a town of some import uh, in, in terms of the area by around the 1850s or so. And then from the 1890s onward, it kind of goes into stasis. Oh. When did the county seat move from, uh, from Richmond Town to St. George? Was it around the turn of the last century? It was the turn of the last century, early, early um, uh, 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century. We see the, the buildings by Career and Hastings that are up in St. George that are the county courthouse. Um, we see the development of the, the ferry terminals. We see the development of the theater. So, yeah, around that time, business and focus and not just that, but new development really started to cluster around and then radiate out from St. George. Oh. Well, let's go back to colonial times. Um, who would have lived in Richmond Town during the Dutch and the English colonial periods? Well, they were basically people of Dutch, English, and French descent, and they commonly worked as blacksmiths, shoemakers, and other craftsmen types. Remember, the, the industry during that time was very much at the artisan level. Uh, we do know that British troops were stationed in Richmond Town during the American Revolution, and uh, it was, as I said, probably the largest town during the revolutionary period on the island itself. Well, before we start talking about um, some of the buildings and, and some of the more recent history, we can't talk about Richmond Town without talking about the Staten Island Historical Society. When was the society founded? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I don't have that information. Actually, 1856, I think, was founded. Oh, for a second, then, I thought I stumped you, David, which I've never been I able know, to do on this I program. Know. But the mid, by the mid-20th century... Uh, it had really kind of exploded and had become a, uh, a very important kind of historic center for New York City. And it had a very ambitious project to kind of collect, preserve, and interpret the material culture of the region. And then um, in the 1930s, the Historic Society became aware of the fact that Richmond Town was relatively intact for a village of that period in New York City itself. At this point, Staten Island is now part of New York City as a municipality. And they began to attempt to acquire buildings in that area. And, uh, the one that they really were very proud of was their ability to acquire the, uh, the courthouse from the 1830s. Uh, and they did so in 1933, 1934, the building having been built in 1833, 100 years before. It's the third courthouse to have been on that site. That is the current sort of visitor center for what is now called Historic Richmond Town or Richmond Town Restoration which is uh, the same organization as the Staten Island Historic Society. So the Staten Island Historic Society uh, operates that site, and they operate four others on the island, um, one of which is a, a farm of uh, some note. But most of the objects and historic information is at the, the actual village. And the Staten Island Historical Society is a little bit different from most in that it, it actually acquires and has acquired a lot of structures. It's not just a couple, but it actually made it its mission to, to rescue and to restore a good number of buildings. It is very interesting because the development of this museum came about during the time of Colonial Williamsburg in the 1920s, 1930s period. And other museum villages, there's one in Michigan that um, actually the, the Ford Company sort of founded. Uh, there's Old Bethpage Village Restoration, which is out on Long Island in um, Nassau County, I believe. And this is one of a, a sort of a series of museum villages that were attempts during that time to kind of salvage all sorts of different buildings, bring them into a community-sized area, and create a kind of a context for them where people could go from one place to the other in a short period of time. So there's a sort of also an element of colonial revival sort of fantasy involved in some of these, which is kind of interesting. Richmond Town is interesting in that many of the buildings are on their original foundations. There oh, were wow. some that were moved to the location. And it's also interesting in that it's one of the very few museum villages. I can think of um, Strawberry Bank, for example, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire is like this. 
where the houses, some of the houses are inhabited. The churches still have congregations. Traffic passes through the way that it would, you know, on a normal road. Uh, it is a museum. It's a protected area. Many of the houses are open to the public, but it's integrated into the neighborhood in a very organic way. And that's something that's very kind of special about that. So it's not just like uh, uh, Colonial, um, Colonial Williamsburg is a living village, but they have this village off to the side that's sort of uh, not exactly. people don't live in. It's sort of on stage. But but Richmond Town actually is a place where people live, have businesses and worship. Yes, yes. The churches are still open for business. The school is right across the street. Um, the place is surrounded by some, you know, houses of later development periods in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. And the town plan is still kind of integrated into the general development. Hmm. It just happens to be that this is a protected and interpreted area of the city. And a little historic factoid about Richmond Town. Isn't the oldest elementary school that's still standing actually located in Richmond Town? Yes, it's very interesting. Uh, there are, as I should point out, there are at least 30 historic buildings at Richmond Town. It's, it's a large collection of its kind. Hmm. And one of the most interesting is a building that stands, uh, it, it was built in 1695. It's the oldest building in the collection. And it is believed to be the oldest still standing elementary school in the United States. Now, I would say that that's balanced out by the fact that this house, it looks like a small wooden house probably also served, they think, as a meeting house. It could have served initially as a place of worship while the church was being constructed. Uh, it probably had a lot of other roles as well, but we do know that it was identified as an, as an elementary school very, very early on in its, its history. Wow. And it's a, really quite a charming little building. And, of course, you can visit uh, historic Richmond Town. Um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David and our journey to historic Staten Island. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. You're back to Rediscovering New York and our episode tonight about historical places in Staten Island that are very much worth visiting. Our first guest is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David, you're not just an aficionado of history and architecture. You actually do it professionally. Do you want to tell our listeners something about your business, Landmark Branding? Yes. So, uh, Jeff, uh, as you know, I've been working in marketing for historic architecture uh, for about five years now. And uh, what I do is I provide marketing support and services to the owners, developers, realtors, and tenants of both historic and architecturally distinguished buildings in New York City and nationwide. So um, I provide everything from VIP uh, tour services, special events, uh, things like um, blog entries, uh, data that is about um, websites, 
listings I, I've written for Brownstoner. You already mentioned my blog, Every Building on Fifth. Um, I'm working on actually reopening that, and I'm going to be updating the blog with new buildings that have appeared on Fifth Avenue in the interim. Uh, well, so, I should hope so. <laughs> else it wouldn't be complete. Yes, exactly. So, and um, I, as you mentioned, I do run the, the the tour series room at the top of Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York. Obviously, things being where they are right now, a lot of these things are on hiatus, but uh, we hope to return to them as soon as possible and continue exploring um, the architecture of this uh, incredible city. Well, that's great. And uh, your site is landmarkbranding.com, correct? Yes, and I can be reached at dgriffin at landmarkbranding.com. Uh, if you go there, all of my contact information is available, as is the blog on Fifth Avenue. Great. Let's uh, move a little bit further toward the harbor from Richmond Town and, and go to Snug Harbor. It sounds like a really great name, Snug Harbor, a place that you'd want to go and hang out. What is Snug Harbor? Yes. Well, uh, I mean, Snug Harbor, obviously the term I think speaks for itself and that it, it was a place of comfort. Um, a, a snuggery was a place that was actually a, a term for where an older member of the family or, or the community might be able to sit comfortably and keep warm. So the idea of Snug Harbor as being this very sort of cozy, quiet place for these people. Uh, Snug Harbor was a retirement home of sorts for mariners. And it was founded by a Revolutionary War veteran who was himself a captain and served with distinction in the American Army at that time. And he decided to found a site that would serve as a, a home for, quote, aged, decrepit, and worn-out seamen. Um, the bequest was made to include Captain Randall's estate. That was, at that time, a very large parcel of land in Manhattan that directly overlooked Washington Square. Um, there was some flap about this will. It was challenged several times by his heirs. Um, there were people that claimed that they were proper collateral heirs through various common ancestors. Uh, there was a case against the newly formed nonprofit. Uh, it was very celebrated in its day. Actually, future President Martin Van Buren served on the defense team, while the writer and academic Daniel Webster provided counsel to the plaintiffs. So it was something of a, a celebrity cause of its time. Um, by the time the Will Challenge was settled, what had been a rural plot in Manhattan had become well-developed, and it became very, very valuable. So what Snug Harbor's trustees decided to do was, well, let's sell this property, we'll go to Staten Island, and we'll use the income we derive from the sale of the Manhattan land to help fund this project, because they'd also been left a portion of land by Captain Randall in Staten Island, where Snug Harbor was developed. When did Snug Harbor and Staten Island open? It opened in the early 1830s. Uh, it started with the central building now known as Building C, which opened a very grand Greek revival building. And it grew to include other buildings in that style over uh, the time period. There was a chapel. There was a still extant concert hall. At its peak in the, I'd say, mid to late 19th century, the uh, complex housed almost 1,000 sailors. Wow. And the property was maintained by the value of the Manhattan development. So if anyone is familiar with Washington Square, of course, you know that there's that great row of beautiful Greek Revival houses that stretch uh, east of Fifth Avenue to the end of the park. Well, that is what was developed on what was supposed to be the site of Snug Harbor. That was the Randall Estate. And those houses are themselves landmarked. They're also Greek Revival, and they were built at the same time as Snug Harbor in the 80s. Of course, Snug Harbor in Staten Island is now a cultural center, and uh, it no longer is used as a retirement home. When did the institution itself no longer become needed or used? Well, as the 20th century continued, profits from the Manhattan development shrank, obviously. They had sold off or rented out or what have you, everything that they were going to do. Also, there was the idea that that area was actually not very fashionable anymore. So rich people were not looking to build you know, elaborate homes, you had the depression coming on. Uh, in the 1930s, something else also started, social security. So all of a sudden, people were not necessarily facing destitution um, if they happened to age out of their, you know, their workforce. So there became less and less of a need for this in terms of general society. And by the 1950s, there were only about 200 sailors left who were very, very elderly, and they had stayed there for a while. And uh, after a while in the, the 1960s, they decided to shut down. 
and they proposed to redevelop the site with high-rise buildings because that was the, the wave of the future in New York at the time. But there's a good end to that story. It didn't happen, and uh, thanks, to part, happen. thanks to the <laughs> Landmarks Law. Yes, the New York City Landmarks Commission stepped forward to save the remaining buildings. There's quite a few of them. They designated them landmark structures, and they listed them on the National Register of Historic Places. There was a series of legal battles that ensued. Yet another legal storm for Snug Harbor. But the validity of the landmark designation was ultimately upheld, and the entire site was, de was des declared a National Historic Landmark in 1965. Well, that was soon after the Landmarks Law. That was, uh, well, actually, yes. if it was... It it was a if it was a national landmark that really wouldn't have impacted the city designation, that would right. have been a separate uh, national. I think the city designation came the following year in 1966, which was the first year that they were open. Um, it, just talking about Snug Harbor itself as an institution, the trustees moved to North Carolina after they sold the Staten Island site to the city of New York, and today the Randall Trust no longer operates a retirement home, but it does continue to work using funds from its endowment to help mariners in need all over the country. So they are not over. They're not done. They are still very much an operating uh, nonprofit. They're actually one of the oldest operating nonprofits in the United States and one of the oldest such nonprofits in the world to continue to operate. Well, now Snug Harbor is not only a cultural center, but there are a number of other institutions that are part of the complex. What are some of the other institutions that are part of Snug Harbor now? It's actually a really amazing range for anyone who has not yet visited um, Snug Harbor. Uh, it really just, it, there's such an incredible variety there. I mean, to start with, you've got the Staten Island Botanical Center, which is remarkable. And that's a large garden. It incorporates numerous garden features. It's almost like a miniature version of the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. You have a traditional Chinese walled garden, which was built as recently as 1998. Uh, there's a secret garden in the Gothic style with a, a castle folly and a little labyrinth for children. Wow. And there's what's called a white garden which was inspired by Vita Sackville West designs in Great Britain and which features exclusively white flowers. Then you've got the Newhouse Center for Contemporary Art. That was established in 1977, exhibiting the work of local and international artists and providing artists and residents exhibitions. Uh, it was founded with a focus on artists who lived and worked on Staten Island, but it has developed a broader focus on contemporary art. Uh, it actually has an incredible exhibition space in one of the historic Greek revival buildings, and it can show large-scale work both inside and outside because, of course, they have an, ama an amazing garden where they can kind of position these pieces. Hmm. And, of course, uh, it's open to the public. Yes, all of these are open to the public. And um, uh, just going through them, the Noble Maritime Collection is a museum with a particular emphasis on the work of an artist known, who was called John Noble, who lived from 1913 to 1983, and one of my favorite things out there is that the collection includes the houseboat that he converted into an artist's studio. And it's really quite something to see. Um, then also founded in 1974 and then opened in Snug Harbor in 1977 is the Staten Island Children's Museum. And that's a, a collection of hands-on exhibits. There's an extensive year-round live animal collection of all sorts of creatures. Uh, the Children's Museum consists of the main building which was originally built in 1913, and the old Snug Harbor Barn, where the livestock was originally kept to feed the sailors who were retired there. Oh, so right. there's, a, there's a, a great little creature, Francis the Praying Mantis, a sculpture designed by the artist Lenny Price, which replaces a wooden original by Robert Ressler, made out of 50 pieces of sculpted metal. And then probably the most, um, for me, one of the most fascinating museums at Snug Harbor is the Staten Island Museum, which has only moved to Snug Harbor in 2015. It was closer to the courthouse prior to that period. And that was founded in 1881 uh, as a private society of local naturalists and antiquarians. It is the oldest and most intact general interest, quote unquote, museum in New York City, meaning that it carries things like science, um, anthropology, art, you know, and in other words, it's not one thing or the other. It's a general museum of things. Um, and it's just got an incredible collection. The breadth of it is, uh, it's been called a mini Smithsonian. And it's the oldest cultural organization on Staten Island and has been very, very uh, instrumental in kind of driving cultural interest in Staten Island towards the museum. Wow. Well, sounds like Snug Harbor is definitely worth a visit and a lengthy visit. 
David, thank you so much for being a guest once again on Rediscovering New York. Our first guest on this special show about cultural institutions of historical note in Staten Island has been David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David can be reached uh, and his website and business at landmarkbranding.com. David, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks a lot, Jeff. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to welcome two additional guests from two additional very important institutions on Staten Island. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. Christopher Pappas, mortgage specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please call Chris at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, its history, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague in Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at JeffGoodmanNYC. If you have comments or questions, you can get in touch with me at jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our next guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business when in New York, uh, it's not a show about the real estate business in New York. When I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, our second guest is the executive director of the National Lighthouse Museum. Yes, the National Lighthouse Museum is located in New York and on Staten Island. Linda Gianto is the executive director. She served as president and currently is the executive director of the museum. Her career has included writing grants and finding support for causes such as building a playground for the disabled, organizing a domestic violence awareness bookmark campaign entitled Loves Me, Loves Me Not, educating young women and girls on positive relationships, initiating the development of a bill for therapeutic recreation licensure in New York State, and working on environmental issues. Quite a resume. 
Possessing bachelor and master's degrees in liberal arts and education from the College of Staten Island and a certificate in the administration of recreation and leisure services, as well as a certificate in philanthropy and fundraising both from NYU, Linda has developed a strong career in education, management, and administration of programs, teaching from early childhood to college-level students and fundraising through the writing of numerous grants, proposals, special events, and other activities to raise funding. Avid travelers, she and her husband have focused their vacations around lighthouses, clue anyone, to gain a better grasp and appreciation of their locations, construction, stories of their keepers, and the navigational history of each one, thoroughly appreciating the individual uniqueness, history, and beauty of each lighthouse they visit. Linda Dianto, welcome to Rediscovering New York. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing this evening? Coming along, coming along. Now, you're originally from New York, aren't you? Well, yes, I am. I actually was from the Bushwick section of Brooklyn, and I came to Staten Island when I was 13 years old. I say BB, before the bridge. (laughs) Wow, so you had to take the ferry to get there, either the Staten Island Ferry or the ferry from the pier at Bay Ridge to get to Staten Island. That's Ah. correct. I remember when the bridge went up, I was a, a small and would see it go up over the over the Bell Parkway for years. It was quite something to look at the back seat up, uh, you know, and, and, and see that bridge going up. Uh, what were some of the organizations, Linda, that you were involved with before you became active in the National Lighthouse Museum? Well, I was very involved with the Seroptimus International. I belonged to the Manhattan Club. I also was involved with the Grasmere Civic Association and uh, the Metropolitan New York Recreation and Park Society and the New York State Recreation and Park Society, to name a few. How did you become involved with the National Lighthouse Museum? Now, that is an interesting question. Um, I was reading my newspaper one day, and it said, dead in the water, the museum was giving up. They, the old board was uh, frustrated. They could not get in on the site, and they just decided to walk away from it. And being an advocate as I am, I said, ah, oh, I will save this museum. And little did I know if I knew then what I do now, how difficult this would be. But oh. it's a challenge. Well, it's not just an advocate for lighthouses, Lyndon. You and, and your husband seem to have a real passion for lighthouses, don't you? I mean, really, really like a love relationship with them. Well, that began after I took uh, the lead and got myself involved with the museum. Before that, I really knew very little about lighthouses, to be honest with you. Um, I... That came afterwards when I decided to take on this project. The U.S. has an enormous coastline. It's many thousands of miles. Of all the famous lighthouses that many of our listeners has heard of, such as Cape Hatteras Light and Fire Island Light, um, I've only been to one of them, by the way, and it wasn't, it's not Fire Island Light. I've actually been to Hatteras. How did New York come to be the home of the National Lighthouse Museum? Well, the truth of the matter is uh, lighthouses were, and back in the 90s, the late 90s, uh, lighthouses started to fall apart. They did not need them as much anymore. They were being decommissioned. Some were being torn down. And a group of, uh, a group nationwide decided, a group of lighthouse aficionados nationwide decided that they would, uh, they needed to come up with a way to preserve this history. So they decided to make a National Lighthouse Museum, and they sent out basically an RFP nationwide seeking uh, a place to have this. Uh, and it turned out that the uh, site of the U.S. Lighthouse Service General Depot, uh, which is right on Staten Island, right next to the Staten Island Ferry, uh, became uh, a very important location and became number one in their search. Well, let's let's talk about the location, and I'm going to say Pier 1. Um, when you say Pier 1 in New York, most people think about the pier on South Street and Whitehall Street in Manhattan or Pier 1 in Brooklyn at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge. But there is a Pier 1 in Staten Island, uh, and that's where the Staten Island Lighthouse Depot was. Um, right. And it also was a, was a Coast Guard station. Um, but I want to ask you a question about its prior history, and it's a strange question to be asking in the middle of, of, of the present coronavirus uh, crisis here. Um, there was something called the quarantine on the grounds of the present museum. What was it? Okay, well, the quarantine was on the site prior to the, um, the U.S. Lighthouse Service General Depot. The quarantine uh, was bringing people, before they got to Ellis Island, sick people were being brought there, dropped off with yellow fever, and, um, and left there to die, basically. And Staten Island got wind of this and realized that we had a lot of sick people, especially when Dr. Bailey Seaton 
uh, Dr. Bailey passed away and he was the head of the whole operation, they decided to burn the quarantine down. They did not want sick people on Staten Island, so they burned the quarantine da down and eventually they put it out on Swinburne and Hoffman Islands. Mm. And that was before the Civil War, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was. Oh. When did the building and the grounds become the Staten Island uh, Lighthouse Depot? Okay, when the land was vacated by the fire, uh, they, uh, the U.S. Lighthouse uh, General Establishment was looking for a place to, to use for a center of operations for lighthouses, and this was a perfect location in the center of New York Harbor. Um, and before it became the Lighthouse Museum, it also was the grounds of the Staten Island Coast Guard Station. When, did, when was the Coast Guard base there? Okay, the Coast Guard station, actually the U.S. Lighthouse Service General Depot was from, began from 1864 to 1939, uh, just around the Civil War time to 1939 and 1939, the U.S. Coast Guard took over the site, and then in 1968, they went over to Governor's Island, and the Sandy Hook pilots then moved into the vacant buildings. Ah. Was there actually a lighthouse at this location, or was it just the depot? Uh, okay. Yeah, well, there were lighthouses. There were two of them on the location, one of them being uh, a lighthouse that was used to test wicks and fuels. But, of course, when the light bulb came into vogue, uh, they did no longer needed to test wicks and fuels. So they decided to repurpose that lighthouse, and they picked it up, and they put it out in the water, and it's now called the Roma Shoal Light in the Raritan Bay. Hmm. You know, a strange question about lighthouses, you know, now, you know, at some point they were uh, uh, electric. How was all that light generated before electricity came to the fore? Uh, the light was ge generated by uh, fuels. Uh, they were actually uh, burning, um, burning different types of oils. Hmm. You know, this is also going to sound like uh, obviously a question from someone who doesn't know lighthouses. What was... The purpose of them, was it, was it to beckon ships into a harbor? Was it to warn them away from a coastline? What, what was the prime function of a lighthouse? Now we have GPS, obviously, and uh, before that we had LORAN, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, what, was, what was the principal function of a lighthouse? Right. The lighthouses functioned to, uh, they were guiding ships into the harbor. They were used to guide ships into the harbor and, of course, keep them off uh, dangerous shoals. People tend not to think of New York as a place that there are lighthouses, but we have quite a number and have had quite a number of lighthouses around the harbor, haven't we? Yes, we have approximately 35 lighthouses in the general New York, New Jersey area. Hmm. What kind of exhibitions are there in the museum, Linda? What could visitors expect to find when they walk through the door of the, of the National Lighthouse Museum? Right, well, one of the key exhibits is our Wall of Lights uh, and... Um, Another we have is a timeline. It takes uh, the timeline of the history of the site, which goes back to the Lenape Indians. Uh, there's also a timeline that goes back to the lighthouse world. The first lighthouse was in Pharos. It was called Pharos in Egypt in 280 B.C. Wow. <laughs> That's a long time ago. That was the tallest building in the world at the time. And that so, even predates uh, Cleopatra. <laughs> absolutely. Oh. Um, one other question. Uh, when life gets back to normal in New York and our institutions open again for visitors, what kind of programming do you have at the museum that visitors would find especially, especially wonderful? Right. We do uh, maritime programs. We do what we call the CASA program, uh, the uh, after-school adventure program, and that is a maritime education experience for children. We also have a program called Brilliant Minds Work on Weekends, and it's a chance for children, and, and uh, it's basically an intergenerational program where children and their parents or grandparents can come and learn about lighthouses together. Oh. We also have lots of school groups coming into the facility um, learning about um, the lighthouse history. And of course, for people who don't have a car, uh, the National Lighthouse Museum is easily accessible, isn't it? <laughs> you can uh, take the ferry and you're there shortly after you get off at the St. George Terminal. Right. It's just a short walking distance, about two minutes to walk over to from the uh, Staten Island Ferry over to the Lighthouse Museum. And uh, what's the website for the Lighthouse Museum, Linda? That's uh, lighthousemuseum.org. Well, great. Well, Linda, thank you so much for being a guest on Rediscovering New York. Our last guest has been, not last of the show, but our latest guest, 
has been Linda Dianto. Linda is the executive director of the National Lighthouse Museum, which is not only located in New York City, but located in Staten Island. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank you so much, Jeff. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to speak with our last guest with another great place to visit on Staten Island. We'll be back in a minute. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com back and you're back to rediscovering new york and this special program about great places to visit in staten island with a historical bent to them uh, my next guest is daphne yoon daphne is the public affairs specialist at gateway national recreation area which includes fort wadsworth which is the subject of this segment of the show daphne has been with the national park service for 23 years gateway for seven years and before that the statue of liberty for 16 years Daphne is originally from North Carolina. We talked about Hatteras a couple of minutes ago. I don't know if she's from, from the Cape. But she's been in New York for 23 years. She lives with her husband, Travis, their nine-year-old son, and their two cats. Daphne, welcome to Rediscovering New York. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. Good, good. You're not originally from New York. What brought you to our fair city? What, what, had you, what beckoned you, not to use a lighthouse uh, 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 reference, but uh, what had you come to New York? I came to New York for the Statue of Liberty. She beckoned me. Uh-huh. Uh, it was for a job. Uh, so I actually have been in the federal government for 25 years, but the Park Service only 23. So I was working in Washington, D.C. I applied for a job at the Statue of Liberty. I received the job and so came to New York, and I've been here ever since. Hmm. And how did you get the position at Fort Wadsworth and Gateway, having been at the Statue of Liberty? So I, while I was at the st- statue, excuse me, I was a, first a park ranger, and then I was a supervisor there. And then after Hurricane Sandy hit at the statue, there was a lot of damage. So, so there was a gateway. A gateway had an open position. They needed help. So I came over, then eventually was able to be permanent with gateway. Hmm. Let's move to Fort Wadsworth, which actually has a special place in uh, my heart. I actually spent a weekend there as a Boy Scout in the 70s, and we had the run of the place, even while it was still a military installation. Um, and you, if you take a look at the land, you sort of look, see a fort, and you think that's Fort Wadsworth, but that's actually a fort within the fort. It's Fort Tompkins. What's the approximate layout of, of, of the entire fort complex and the batteries around it? Yes, yeah, so there's, there are actually a lot of forts. Although, when I did some research into your question, the reason that you thought that the fort, the fort that's on the water was Fort Wadsworth is because it was at one point. Uh, it was named Fort Wadsworth in 1865, renamed Battery Weed, and then eventually in 1898, the whole complex was named Fort Wadsworth. So that's why there's some confusion. 
Uh, but Fort Wadsworth really is, is the whole complex. So there's Fort Tompkins is the one that's on the overlook. Battery Weed is at the water. And then there are multiple other forts and batteries throughout. What was on the site before any of the present fortifications were built? Well, not a lot. And really, it has been a fortified site, even if there weren't actual forts, since before the American Revolution. And the reason why is because of location and height. Just the height of the fort and the way it overlooks the Narrows means that it's always had um, a great perspective and a great uh, place to have a military site. Well, that fort on the water, which was originally Fort Tompkins, when was that built? Uh, that was actually built in the 1840s, a little bit later. Um, and actually, the fort that's on the water is Battery Weed. The fort that's above is Fort Tompkins. Oh, okay, okay. So and- the fort on the water is Battery Weed. They were both built around the same time, um, sort of in the 1840s, and then rebuilt a little bit later. Although there were, even before then, earthenworks, and so it's just been rebuilt and rebuilt on the same site in different types of styles. I think the first real big fortification was built around the time of the War of 1812, but one thing that I found interesting about it was that it was a, it was a fort, but it was not a federal installation when it was built. It was actually owned by the state of New York. When did New York uh, 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 give it or sell it to the federal government, and what was the thinking around giving it to the feds, and, well, the feds, the federal government back then, I don't think they called it the feds, instead of keeping it under uh, the uh, uh, state controlled? And so it was in 1841, part of Fort Wadsworth became federal. By 1847, again, it was the whole complex. Um, and again, I think it was just the idea of defense. Other parts of the harbor had already become federal sites and already been built to create defense. And so this just became greater, greater defense. And with the federal government, you have the U.S. Army. So it made sense to be part of the federal government system. Well, before we talk about uh, some more of the, the recent uh, use and what Fort Wadsworth uh, has become and part of Gateway, I, I want to talk just for another minute about about uh, armaments and about technology. Uh, most people think of forts and look at forts like that as, as, as cannons sort of behind those, uh, uh, open, uh, those openings and firing. But during the Civil War, um, that kind of fortress... Uh, became made obsolete by advances in in naval armaments. So um, something called the disappearing guns were developed. Do you want to tell our listeners what did, what the disappearing guns were? What disappearing guns were? Hello, Daphne. Have we lost you? Okay, we may have lost Daphne. I actually know the answer to what disappearing guns were. Um, they were uh, less susceptible to bombardment from the sea, and what they were was they were uh, they were sort of retractable guns. They were on springs, and they would you could not see them from the sea, but you could hoist them into place. So, if there were any guns being fired from boats, they couldn't actually take out those guns because they were hidden behind the fortresses. Hence, they were hence they were disappearing. Um, Daphne, are you back? I am. Oh, Sorry good. about that. No worries. No worries. No worries at all. Um, it's a good thing I knew the answer to the question I asked you because I was able to give our listeners a, uh, an answer to it. Um, when did Fort Wadsworth become simply a military base rather than an active fortified defense of the harbor? So really, the defense of the harbor just kept evolving each time the United States had some type of conflict. So we go from the American Revolution when we were captured by the British. So we want to make sure that we're never that never happens again. We fortify the before the War of eighteen twelve. There's new technology. We have to refortify for the Civil War. There's more new technology. We refortify again for Spanish American War. New technology, and really, it's World War, end of World War One, beginning of World War One, where Fort Wadsworth doesn't become as important in defense of New York City. Really, at that point, it moves further out to Fort Tilden, Sandy Hook, and um, Fort Wadsworth becomes more of a barracks. 
Mm. I've actually been to Fort Tilden, and it was amazing seeing those uh, uh, casements where the the guns are gone, but where the uh, uh, the guns were, were were placed between the between the World Wars. I think they were sixteen inch guns. The pla- the 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 actual uh, uh, places where they uh, were based is is enormous, and you can still visit them. By the way, you can build, you can visit the casements at least at um, at Fort Tilden. Um, when was when was Fort Wadsworth decommissioned as a military base? So it actually was in the under the army until the late seventy seventy nine is when it became U.S. Navy, and then. In 1994, the U.S. Navy turned it over to the federal government. It became part of the National Park Service and at that time became part of Gateway National Recreation Area. How did uh, uh, visits to the site change when it became part of Gateway? Did they just sort of open the forts and let people roam through it? Did they actually build different things to encourage visitors to, to use that, that newest part of Gateway? Well, since I am a, a newer employee, um, as from what I have learned, the overlook, so the place where you can look over the harbor, see all those great views, that was really something the Park Service did. We built that up as a, as a space for visitors to come to. Um, we've also created a visitor center and a museum inside oh. as a visitor center. Mm. And uh, one other note I wanted to mention, too, was that uh, by the time Fort Wadsworth was decommissioned, uh, it purportedly was the longest continuing garrison military installation in the whole United States, uh, which really is remarkable. And we have that right in New York. Um, It's part of Gateway now. What's the extent of the Gateway National Recreation Area? So Gateway is actually a large national park with 27,000 acres. We cover Staten Island and Staten Island where Fort Wadsworth. Miller Field, Great Coast Park. We're also in Brooklyn and Queens, the Jamaica Bay unit, and then even in Sandy Hook, the Sandy Hook um, Peninsula, which includes the longest continuously operating lighthouse, the Sandy Hook Light. Hmm. And also extends out to Jamaica Harbor as part of Gateway, I think, as well. Um, yeah, so, well, Jamaica Bay, that whole waterway is actually considered part of Jamaica Bay. There's the Jamaica Bay Wildlife Refuge. Fort Tilden is actually part of Gateway, uh, Reef Beach. So, again, we're a pretty large park. Hmm. Superstorm uh, Super Sandy happened in 2012. What was the damage like to, to Fort Wadsworth as a result of that storm? Fort Wadsworth itself actually didn't have a lot of damage because, again, Fort Wadsworth is on high land. One of the things that happened at Fort Wadsworth was actually a good thing. Um, a fort was discovered because Sandy uncovered it. So underneath the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, and, and we call it the slope, there's sort of a, a new door that you can see, even from Brooklyn, and we have information about it on our website. But this was uncovered. It was something that was previously not known about. And it really, it supports Physically, some of the other forts that are higher than it. Wow. So it's a pretty exciting find. Is most of Fort Wadsworth now accessible to visitors since it's part of Gateway? So the grounds are all completely accessible for for any kind of self-guided tour. Um, The forts themselves are mainly only through guided programs or if we have open hours. Those are mainly in the summer. And then we also, as I said, have the visitor center and the museum um, limited hours in the off season, which is which are winter months, and more um, accessible times in the summer season. Oh. Well, I have time for one more question, Daphne. What kind of in normal times? What kind of summer programs could could visitors find in Fort Wadsworth if they were to visit on on summer days? So one of the things that's very successful and very popular is we have a, a nighttime tour of Fort Tompkins. Um, so that's something that we've been having, having once a week. We also have daily tours of the fort, um, both of Fort Tompkins and of Battery Weed. We have a historic house, and so we give people tours and, a, and an idea of what an Army family in the 1800s would have lived like on the fort. Oh, wow. That sounds really, really interesting. Uh, and how can, how can people find out about, about Fort Wadsworth and its programming? So we have a couple of different ways. 
The main way is our website, nps.gov slash gate. But we also are on, are on social media, and we're at Gateway NPS on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Well, great. Daphne, thank you so much for being a guest on Rediscovering New York. Well, thank you so much for having me. I hope you have a good night. You as well. Our last guest has been Daphne Yoon. She's the public affairs specialist at Gateway National Recreationary, which includes Fort Wadsworth. And you've joined us tonight on this special episode, visiting four special places in Staten Island. Thanks for joining us. Uh, if you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappas, mortgage banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer this evening is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant, who was our first guest tonight, is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Radio, 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network, 